four. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we... Open up your word this morning to understand the the fact that we can do nothing of ourselves, but that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We ask for help. Father, we need the Spirit's help to even consider the fact that we need the Spirit's help. I ask that you would give me wisdom, that you would lead and guide me in every word that I speak this morning. That you would open the hearts and minds of your people, that you would apply the word to our hearts, to our minds, and that that if any don't know you, that you would regenerate their hearts and they would come to, to faith and repentance for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have sung about this glorious gospel this morning, this, this good news of the fact that our chains have fell off, our, our hearts are free, and we sang about this wonderful blood of Jesus. We've been considering here in the book of Acts how we are required to go and tell others about this good news that we have received. And so we've been looking at the apostles in their pursuit to fulfill the Great Commission. And we've been told a lot about what we have to do, what we need to do. And, and today, this, this message will, will balance us greatly. We, we have a tendency to look at people like Peter or Paul running into the midst of a riot, and, and, and these men who are willing to, to risk their neck for the sake of truth. We, we look at men like that, and we, we, we almost want to worship them. We look at the man and say, wow, that man is bold. Look how he was able to do this. Look how he can clearly articulate truth. We, we think of Spurgeon, for example. A man who boldly preached a faithful gospel to about 10,000 people every week. And we, we, we look at Spurgeon and we say, well, of course this man could boldly preach the truth to so many people. Just, just look at this man. Look at, look at his towering intellect and his massive vocabulary. His photographic memory. And we say, that's why he was the prince of preachers. But if you think that way, you don't get it. Spurgeon himself said, without, without the, the, the Spirit, we can do nothing. We're like a ship with no wind. We're like a chariot with no horses. 
We're, we're like a coal with, with no fire, just absolutely useless. And perhaps you've heard this, the story of Spurgeon as he would walk into the pulpit. Once he stepped on each step, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I, would be, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It had nothing to do with his intellect, nothing to do with his vocabulary. Yes, God used those things. But Spurgeon was not dependent on those things. And so we've been looking at the Apostle Peter standing before the Sanhedrin, and we are amazed at his boldness and his courage and his ability to articulate truth. And we say, wow, I want to be like that. I wish I was an apostle, because if I were an apostle, then I could do that. How come God did not make me bold like Peter? Well, we are going to see in this text why Peter was able to stand before the Sanhedrin the way that he did. So we began last week looking at the response of, of, of the Sanhedrin to Peter's gospel proclamation. They arrest him unjustly. He proclaims the gospel to them. He calls out their sins and he points them to faith in Jesus Christ. And when the Sanhedrin hear this and perceive that, that they are uneducated, and common men, they are amazed, they are astonished at this. And when we also saw, saw that this, this boldness reminded the Sanhedrin of, of Jesus, that this caused them to remember that these men had been with Jesus. And how do we define boldness? We define it as honesty and straightforwardness in speech. In other words, clearly stating the truth instead of withholding the truth or, or beating around the bush so that people don't really understand what we are saying. This boldness has nothing to do with, with the way he is saying things necessarily, but, but with the fact that he is not withholding truth. He is clearly articulating the truth, not compromising, not backing down. When Peter proclaimed the gospel... There was no question to what he was saying. He called out the leaders. He called out the Sanhedrin for their sins. And, and there was no way for what he said to be mistaken. He said it perfectly clear. And then, after that, Peter also made it crystal clear that salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone, saying there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is Boldness standing before these men with courage and clearly giving them the truth, not, not hesitating, not watering down, not backing away from the truth. So how did these common and uneducated men stand before these leaders and proclaim the truth with such confidence and boldness. And we said this is an important question because as we've seen, being faithful in fulfilling our mission re requires this type of boldness. Not only does it take boldness to proclaim the one true gospel, to, to, to point people to their sins and point them to Jesus as the only Savior, but it also requires boldness to teach everything that Christ commands especially in a culture that hates what Christ commands. So where do we get this boldness? And I, and I said our text gives us two answers. Number one, we must be good disciples. And in this point we covered last week. We said that a disciple is a learner. These, these men had been with Jesus. They were learners. They, they understood Doctrine. They understood theology. They understood the scriptures. They could articulate the truth. And as we said, we, we can't just depend upon God to put truth into our head that we have not read and studied and listened to. We need to understand the truth. We need to be able to clearly articulate the truth in, in private before we can stand before others and boldly proclaim that truth. And, and Peter tells us himself in his epistle that we must always be ready to do this. But now here's the question we answer today. Is mere study enough? Is simply knowing the truth 
enough. If we have enough information in our heads, does it mean that we will automatically be able to stand before others boldly, clearly, and effectively sharing the truth without compromise, simply because we know enough? I think we know that's not true, don't we? Because how many actually know the truth and tiptoe around it when they are pressed by others? You ever talk to a person, you just can never guess what they believe because they won't say it. They won't say it clearly. They they say everything but what you're trying to get them to say. How many people deny the truth that that they know clearly to avoid embarrassment or trouble? How many people withhold the truth they clearly know to avoid offense and conflict? How many people skate around the truth to avoid controversy? Now, if we know the truth intellectually, but we avoid or complicate or deny the truth simply to avoid embarrassment, trouble, or controversy, what would we do in the face of persecution? Would we stand like Peter and John before wicked leaders and be willing to, to call out their, their, their injustice and their wickedness and point them to Jesus as Savior? Would, would we be able to stand before wicked leaders and, and, and tell them, thus says the Lord? It's not just knowing the truth, is it? There are men whose minds are are brilliant, but if they are pressed, they won't give you the truth. Why? Because knowing the truth is not enough. How many times have you been in a situation where you know you should say something, you know what the truth is, and you know you should speak it, and you don't? This shows us simply knowing it's not enough. We, we need to know. Peter said, always be ready to give an answer for the, for the hope you have within you. We need to know, but it's not enough. And so the second thing we need to grow as, as bold disciple makers is a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're going to see in our text. And for this point, we're going to go back to verse 8. Where we read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And you may say, why are we covering part of verse 8 after we covered verse 13? The reason I'm doing this is because now that we have seen this play out, we can ask the question, how did he do this? How did he stand before these men knowing that he was risking his neck? And articulate the truth to them. I mean, this man is arrested unjustly, Peter and John both. And instead of cowering, they point out their injustice in arresting them. They're relentless. They're not afraid. They're bold. They're courageous. How? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit... Luke says, before Peter spoke these words, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to note several things about this statement today. Number one, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What is is Luke attempting to communicate to us? I think to understand this, we need to understand a bit of what happened at Pentecost. What, What happened at Pentecost? We all know that the, that the Spirit was, was poured out upon God's people, poured out upon the Christians. But, but what does this mean? Does this mean that God's people did not have the Holy Spirit before this? Did, did Jesus' disciples not have the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? 
I like how R.C. Sproul puts it. He points out that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit filled the role of regenerating and dwelling and sanctifying God's people. So he would argue that, that we did have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did indwell us, but, but there's a difference. He points out from the day of Pentecost onward, we also receive the anointing of God to carry out our task as believers in the world. So here's the difference. In the Old Testament, there were only certain believers who received, or certain people who, who, who received the special anointing of the Holy Spirit to do things that God had called them to do. We see this with kings and rulers. For example, Saul had this spirit. But what happened when, when Saul rejected God? This, this spirit was taken away from him. Moses had this spirit. And, and we read about the, the 70 elders and this spirit being put upon them as well. And what did Moses say? He said, would that all of God's people would be prophets and that, that he would put his spirit upon them. This is Moses' prayer. But, but then we get to Joel, and this is a prophecy that one day all of God's people would have this anointing that would allow them to do what God had called them to do. Now, this has already happened by Pentecost. This, this happens at Pentecost. But here we are in Acts chapter 4, and, and Pentecost has already taken place. So, so this initial outpouring of the Spirit had already happened. So, so this is something different. What is this feeling of the Spirit that, that Luke mentions? There are several different opinions on this. John Gill points out that Peter received a fresh measure of the gifts and graces of the Spirit besides what he had poured forth upon him at the day of Pentecost. R.C. Sproul said this expression seems to refer to an intervention whereby the Spirit enables believers to speak God's message. Now this might be scaring some of you. Is this man becoming charismatic? We have reactionary theology, don't we? We say, well, if I, come, if I came out of the charismatic camp, I must now deny the Holy Spirit. But that's an overreaction. I love what Paul Washer points out. This is, a, this is our inheritance. Do not deny me my inheritance. So, so one might say in this text that, that the Spirit emboldened Peter. I think we can define this as the Holy Spirit assisting or helping Peter, enabling Peter to stand and speak in a way that he was not capable of doing in and of himself. And I think we could say that this is something special. This is not ordinary. Now, I personally do believe that, that, that even today the Spirit can help us in, in varying degrees, in varying situations. This is why we pray for the Spirit's help. What are we praying for when we, when we ask that, that, that God's Spirit would give us wisdom and that He would help us and assist us? We are praying for this very thing. So in a few minutes, we're going to look at some of the specifics of, of how the Spirit actually helps. But, but before we do this, I want us to understand the significance of this statement. So here's our second heading. The significance of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we know that Peter proclaimed the gospel. Before he proclaimed the gospel, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and we know that his proclamation of the gospel astonished the Sanhedrin because he was not a trained theologian by Jewish standard and he was a fisherman by trade. Now, what is the connection between Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter standing and speaking boldly in a way that astonishes the Sanhedrin? There is a connection there. This statement is something that we could easily read over. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on. But there's great significance to this. Listen to what Calvin says. It is not without great cause that Luke added this. To the end that we may know that Peter spoke not with such a majesty of himself. And surely seeing he had denied his master Christ, being afraid at the voice of a woman, he would 
have utterly fainted in such an assembly when he did not but only behold their pomp unless he had been upheld by the power of the Spirit. He had great need of wisdom and strength. He excelled in both of these so much that his answer is indeed divine. He is another manner of man here than he was before. Calvin points out that Luke had a great reason for for adding these words. These were not simply filler words. You know what filler words are when you have to write an essay that's 10,000 words and you only have 9,000 so you just start adding words in? That's not what happens in Scripture. Everything Scripture says is significant. Every detail is important. So as Calvin points out, Luke writes these words so that we understand that Peter did not speak with such wisdom and with such boldness on his own. Why does Calvin say that? Because we know Peter's past, don't we? And so let us look thirdly here at, at Peter's history of standing before others. Now, can you think of any other accounts in Scripture where where Peter was pressed by others concerning his association with Jesus? This same Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, records what happened with Peter in his account of the gospel. And what does he tell us in Luke 22? Jesus warns Peter that he was going to be tempted. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. If you know anything about Peter's personality, you can imagine how he would respond to being told that he was going to fail. Peter is bold, brazen. A little rough around the edges. How does he respond to this? Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm not going to fail. What are you saying? He, He sounds like a man with no fears. Is this why Peter is able to stand before the Sanhedrin with such boldness? Because he resolved to go with Christ both to death and to prison wherever it led him? Let's go on. Jesus knows how he's going to respond. So he tells Peter, The rooster will not crow this day before you have denied me three days. Times. And I can just imagine Peter's mind thinking, yeah, right. I am resolved. I am strong. I I am bold. I'm going to death with this man. And it seems very much like Peter was willing to do that. Because what happens when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus? John tells us Peter, having a sword, drew his sword and cut off the high priest's servant ear. As we would say in the hood, Peter's about that life. He doesn't care. You're going to arrest my Lord? I'm going to pull out my sword and I'm swinging at somebody's head. This man is surely willing to go to prison and surely willing to go to death for Christ, right? And having been warned, having been warned that, that he would deny his master three times, he must be resolved in his mind that, that no, I'm not going to do that. He said I would, and I won't. What happens next? Jesus is arrested. Luke tells us Peter follows at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. 
And Peter said, that's right, I was. Is that what happens? No. Peter denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. Does this shock you? Like, like this, this absolutely astonishes me. That after everything Peter said and did, he, he would tell the servant girl, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. Now surely Peter recognizes he denied Christ once and he's not going to fall for that again. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, he had, an, he had another hour to think this through. Am I, am, I, am I really ready to go to prison and to death for this man? An hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. I don't even know what you're talking about. And Matthew tells us that Peter began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know this man. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Behold the wise, courageous, mighty apostle Peter. Denying Christ before a servant girl. Trying so hard to prove that he is not with Christ and does not even know him that he reverts to cursing and swearing to, to make it known that he is not with this man. This possibly means he, he was imprecating himself, curse be me if I know that man. Or, or cursing and swearing to, to show I'm not with those men. I don't even talk like those people. This is the history of Peter. Standing before others who are pressing him about his association with Jesus. Peter was ashamed of Christ before a servant girl who could do nothing to him. So ashamed that in anger he's cursing and swearing to prove he is not with Christ. After walking with Christ for years, this is amazing. But what about now here in Acts? Something is, is drastically different. Peter is boldly preaching, calling out sins and pointing people to Christ as the only way to salvation, not only to servant girls, but to people who can arrest him and kill him. And they know he can. Why? Because they have already killed his master. Peter denies Christ before a servant girl. And then he stands before rulers who can kill him and says, there's, there's, salvation is found in no other name. By the way, you crucified this man, and God raised him from the dead. As Calvin noted, he had great need of wisdom and strength. And he excelled in both these so much that his answer is indeed divine. He is another manner of man here than he was before. This is not the same Peter we saw before. The, the old Peter would surely have denied Christ before hostile rulers. He would have melted before them. But this new Peter has, has such wisdom and strength and boldness that he astonishes the Sanhedrin with boldness. Look at the difference of this man. First, he astonishes us because he's, denied, because he's willing to deny Christ three times and once before a servant girl. Now he astonishes the Sanhedrin because he's so bold for Christ. This should cause us to ask a question. What changed in Peter? What is different? 
And so for our fourth heading here, the, the importance of the Holy Spirit. What brought about this new, bold Peter? The answer is found in these words of Luke. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, when in Scripture do we first see this bold, new apostle Peter? Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. After. After the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Christians in Jerusalem. After that, Peter is like a lion. He's bold. He, he's courageous. And he was not like this before. But you see, not only was he empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his work, but as noted, he was especially helped in this situation. He was filled with the Spirit before proclaiming the gospel. Now, I want us to understand the importance of this. I think we can see in Peter's life how the Holy Spirit was essential for his ministry. That he could do nothing without the Spirit's help. But, but here's the question. Do we understand how essential the Holy Spirit is in our mission? Our mission is the great commission to, to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that Christ commands. Teach them to obey these things. How essential in your mind is the Holy Spirit in this? Or are we pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps? Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. Notice that Pentecost is tied very closely to the Great Commission. Jesus said, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. But before you go, tarry in Jerusalem. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you can go and carry out this mission. They're given the Great Commission, but in the beginning of Acts, they're told to wait in Jerusalem before the ascension. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And when He comes, what will He do? He will give you power. And then, you will be my witnesses throughout all of the earth. After the Holy Spirit came, the apostles and all the Christians became effective in their ministry. We are told that, that the word was preached on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit was poured out. And, and, and what was the result? 3,000 souls were saved. This came after Pentecost. This happened after the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit enabled Peter to boldly proclaim the gospel at Pentecost, just like he enabled him to boldly stand before the Sanhedrin here in Acts 4. Do not take this lightly when you read the book of Acts and, and you see Luke saying that before this happened, this person was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not an insignificant thing. So we know the, the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but how exactly did this help Peter and John? And how exactly does this help us? The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, first of all. Considers the words of Christ in Luke 12. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter standing before the Sanhedrin and clearly, boldly articulating the gospel was direct fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. Yes, Peter, you need to know the gospel well. You need to be able to articulate it. But don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you say. The Holy Spirit will, will help you, will lead you, will guide you in that situation. And this is true for us. We have this same Holy Spirit, this same promise. But not only does the Holy Spirit give us wisdom, the Holy Spirit gives us strength and courage and boldness and peace. In every situation, consider with me John chapter 14. Listen to these words of Christ as he seeks to, to comfort his disciples. 
He's about to die. They are going to be persecuted. Things are going to get hard. And he wants to comfort them. So what does he say? These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Even in the midst persecution. Instead of being fearful, instead of having troubled hearts, Jesus says, I give you peace because I'm sending you the helper. I'm sending you the comforter. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is also fulfilled in this account of Peter and John. Instead of acting like madmen and like fearful cowards, they stood there peaceably and boldly, courageously. Alexander McLaren notes, one cannot but note the calmness of the apostle. So unlike his old tumultuous self. That man was not calm. That man drew a sword and sliced somebody's ear off. That's pretty rash. And you know he wasn't thinking that through because there was an entire army. He wasn't peaceful. He wasn't calm. He had a fearful heart. But Jesus did, in fact, leave and send the helper. And the helper did, in fact, help Peter and John in this situation. Listen to what Sproul says. The Christian life is not a call to mere contemplation, but a call to action. A call to make disciples of all nations. Sadly, however, the church has not always been faithful to this call, which has created barriers to the expansion of the church and to all people groups. What accounts for this failure? Part of the problem is our cowardliness. The church is sometimes afraid to do God's will because we fear the ramifications. Cowardliness is not the mere presence of fear, but the refusal to act because of that fear. In fact, to be courageous requires us to first be afraid. It is no mark of courage to do what we are not afraid to do. Courage means doing what we know we need to do even when we are filled with fear. So we can think about this. Why have we not shared the gospel with others? We're fearful. It doesn't mean you're a coward because you're fearful. It means we are cowards when we act upon that fear and don't do what we should do because of that fear. Fear. And I imagine that we have all been there. So the question is, how do we do what we are afraid to do? How do we share the gospel with others? How how do we tell others the truth of Scripture when we are afraid? Listen to what Sproul says here. As believers, we should be encouraged to do what is right despite our fear because of the Lord's presence with us. And the New Testament makes it clear that the Lord is present with his church by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ calls us not to be afraid. And in the context of John 14, the reason we should not be afraid is the presence of the Holy Spirit among us as our helper or comforter. And Sproul points out, what does this word comforter mean and we've talked about this before we think of a comforter and we we think of a person who hands us a tissue and pats us on the back after we fell but when this word comforter was translated into english it came from two latin words 
Cum, which means with, and forte, which means strength. So Jesus was essentially saying, when he said, I send you the comforter, he's saying, I I am sending you the one who who comes with strength. Not, Not the one who consoles you after you fail, after you lose the battle, but the one who comes alongside of you in the midst of the battle and who comes with strength. Peter stood boldly and proclaimed the gospel not on his own strength, but by the one who comes alongside of us with strength, the Holy Spirit. If Peter had to rely upon his own wisdom and strength to proclaim the gospel, what would he have done? I submit to you that he probably would have remembered his past failure and just closed his mouth. He would have cowered away once again because of his inadequacy and fear. But instead of being left to himself, he was helped by the Spirit. Dear friends, do we recognize that we have a helper? We have a comforter. We have one who comes alongside of us with strength. Are we trusting in ourselves to to do what God has called us to do? Are we trusting in ourselves to be bold disciple makers for Christ? If we are trusting in our own wisdom and strength and ability to speak, we will cower and fail. And maybe you have the boldness in and of yourself to, to witness to your neighbor because you know more than them about Scripture. You know more than them about science or whatever. You're trusting in your own self, in your own wisdom. But what happens when you stand before others who know more than you? What happens when you stand before leaders who can take your freedom or can take your life at any moment? You will cower if you are standing on your own strength, on your own wisdom, on your own ability. But trusting And believing that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom, boldness, strength, courage, and peace. We can stand before others. And open our mouths for Christ. When we go out into the world or wherever we are in an attempt to make disciples, we need to be trusting that we have the one with us who, who has come alongside of us with strength and he will give us wisdom, he will give us courage, he will give us boldness, and we can run into the battle knowing that we are not on our own, but that there is one who is with us. And let me just add quickly, Not only do we need to depend on the Holy Spirit for the wisdom and and boldness to proclaim the truth, but, but we need to make sure that we are also depending upon the Spirit for the results. Not only can we not stand boldly in and of ourselves, but we also can't produce the results in and of ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the one who who makes our efforts to make disciples successful. How so? Who is it who regenerates the hearts of those who are dead and their sins? Is it us? Is, Is it our ability to reason with people? Do we reason people into the kingdom of God? I've quoted Paul a thousand times. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. The Holy Spirit operates through the preaching of the gospel. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But but not only with salvation, when we are teaching disciples to obey all that Christ commands, who is it that illuminates the word to those who hear? Who takes the word and applies it to the heart? Who is it who, who, who brings about conviction and repentance and obedience? Is it the preacher? Is it you? It's the Holy Spirit. This is one of the amazing things about preaching. You hear these stories of men who, who they preached a sermon and ten people come to them afterwards and say, you preached that sermon to me. How did you know what was going on in my life? 
What is that? Better yet, who is that? The Holy Spirit. We can do nothing of our own. And to conclude here, let me give you one final heading. What does this dependence upon the Holy Spirit look like? Let me give you three quick things. Number one, dependence upon the Holy Spirit means not changing our message. If the gospel is the message the Holy Spirit uses to change hearts, and we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, this means we must not change the message He uses. And if we want disciples to grow in obedience to Christ, we must not change the message of Scripture. For the Bible contains the words that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us, to sanctify us, to encourage us, to build us up. The Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts. The Holy Spirit does not apply the words of Marx and Darwin and others to our hearts. We think people need to grow by by some other means, some other message, some other philosophy. Let's add this and let's add that. Dear friends, if we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, we would not change the message that He uses to save souls and to build up saints. But number two, dependence upon the Holy Spirit means not changing our methods. In our culture, we know we rely upon tricks, gimmicks, programs, psychology, philosophy, and everything else more than we do the Holy Spirit. We don't think preaching is relevant today, so what do we do? Let's just move this pulpit. I'll sit in a stool. We'll dim the lights. I'll drink my latte while I I just have a talk with you because preaching is offensive. Don't preach at me. We don't believe in the foolishness of preaching, do we? No, it's all about the new method. Did you hear about this new church growth method? Did you hear about this new method that can be used to to help people grow or to save people? We, We found a really tricky way to do this. And everything is about felt needs or trying to manipulate people. Perhaps if we just tell more stories and and tell more jokes, more people would want to hear the word of God. We're always looking for new methods. What is this? A lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The only reason we revert to pragmatism, what we think works, is because we don't rely upon the Holy Spirit. And finally, dependence upon the Holy Spirit means we must be a praying people. It's interesting that in Ephesians, Paul asks, the truth in the name of Christ. They know they have to share Christ with others. But they know that if they do, they are going to be persecuted now. But they want to be faithful to their mission, so what do they do? They go to God in prayer. God, we want to faithfully proclaim the message. We know that you have called us to do this as your people. And we know that we are going to be persecuted now for this. So give your servants boldness. They pray for boldness. And what is the result of this prayer? Verse 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you see what Luke did there? He didn't just say God gave them boldness. He said first, as a result of this prayer, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached the word with boldness. God granted their request for boldness by by giving them an extra measure, as it were, of the Holy Spirit by filling them with the Holy Spirit so that they could then continue to proclaim the Word with all boldness, even in the midst of persecution. 
Dear friends, if we stand before others confident in our flesh, we will fall. We will each have a breaking point. Maybe some of us will stand longer than others, but eventually we will all fall. But if we want to be bold proclaimers of truth, bold disciple makers, bold witnesses for Christ, we must recognize our total dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in a situation that we're uncomfortable with and say, I'm going to walk right into this. Why? I'm fearful. Why would I do this? Because I know there's somebody who's going to walk into this with me. I know the Holy Spirit is going to give me boldness that I don't feel I have right now. I know the Holy Spirit is going to give me wisdom to answer. I'm not worried about that. And by the way, I'm not worried about my method because I'm trusting the Holy Spirit for results. Yes, I have to use wisdom and and present the truth clearly, but I'm trusting in the Spirit for results. And dear friends, what happens when we depend upon the Holy Spirit? And we are faithful to our mission. As we see here in the book of Acts, souls are saved. The kingdom is spread. And these believers are are able to stand before others boldly in a strength that is not their own. May the Lord give us bold and faithful Christians today. Men and women who are not confident in the flesh, but men and women who are bold because of their reliance upon the Holy Spirit for strength and for the results. Let us pray. Dear God, we, we just thank you for give, giving us so much, so much to see in Scripture for not leaving us blind, for helping us to see how it is that we can stand boldly in fulfilling the mission you have given us to fulfill. And we ask for the Spirit's help in our lives. Knowing that we can do nothing, like Spurgeon said, we are like ships with no wind. Chariots with no horses. Father, help us to trust and rely upon the Holy Spirit for help in all that we do. Living our lives righteously, loving our spouses, loving our children, loving one another, and boldly proclaiming the message to our culture, to the world. Father, may you be glorified to raise up saints who are not afraid to, to, to fulfill the mission you have given to the church. Saints who would not be cowardly and and cause their fear to, to paralyze us and cripple us. But saints who, even though we are afraid sometimes, we're willing to walk into situations knowing that the Holy Spirit will give us strength and courage and peace and wisdom.